the following message was given by Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, November 10th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Just going to keep going right through 1 Samuel together. And uh, let me just give you a, a sense of what we want to do this morning with that. So God has, has already brought judgment against Israel. We saw that last week, especially against its corrupt leadership, the house of Eli. He carried out that sentence. And now what we discover is that God is actually on tour. He is, he is going through and his judgment tour is continuing. Now he's going to visit judgment upon the false god of the Philistines, Dagon, and upon the Philistines themselves. So I, I, I just want to put that out there and break it to you up front that we're dealing with all judgment today. But in that, I, I think there's also traces of God's mercy toward us that we're going to be able to see as well. So hopefully, if God guides me the way I'm hoping, then that, we'll get to all of that. We'll see, yes, the, the judgment of God and how he takes that seriously, but we'll also see his mercy toward us in some of the things here. And then the other thing that I, I hope comes across is I, I'm not going to say that you and I are full-blown idolaters. And I, I know it's very, it's, it's common and very popular for Christians to speak that way today. But I do think there's a distinction between the sort of paganism we're, we're looking at here in the Philistines' lives and the sort of things that you and I might be guilty of. So I, I do believe there are aspects of pagan pagan culture and aspects of pagan ideas and beliefs and practices that show up in our lives, and, and I think God intends to purify us of that. And I'm hoping that this morning that's what his word will do. So let me pray for us as we begin, and then we'll read the text in 1 Samuel chapter 5, and then I'll see what God wants to say. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. You, you say in your word, you told us in Titus chapter 2, that one of the reasons you died, Lord, you sent Jesus... And one of the reasons he died was to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so that's what we're asking you to do for us this morning, Lord. That we ask that you would purify us as your people. Remind us that we've been redeemed from every lawless deed and purify us so that we are your own possession in this world and zealous for good works as you would define those. And we ask that in your name, Jesus. And everybody said? Amen. First Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Now pause for a moment. Very bad idea. Very bad idea. I was, I was reminded, uh, just I won't tell you which movie or anything, but it was a bad idea to kidnap Liam Neeson's daughter. And this is a bad idea too, right? This is going to cause you some problems. Verse 3. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, happened again. Dagon had fallen again, face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. 
and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. And this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this very day. Now, we're going to move now in the text from, from God dealing with Dagon, the false god himself, and exposing him for the fraud that he is. And now he turns his attention to the false worshipers, the Philistines themselves. And what we're going to hear over and over here is that the hand of the Lord is heavy against them. Verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Now, before I forget, the, the lords of the Philistines were the rulers of the five cities within Philistia. So this would be like the governors in our, in our vernacular. They gathered together those, those civic leaders, and they say, what do we do? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around... The hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the God, or, or sent the ark rather of God to Ekron. Let's try that place, they say. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, Oh, no, you don't. They cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place. Notice they're not asking these guys any questions anymore. We know exactly what we want. Just send that thing away, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. As I promised, very depressing passage. Very, very depressing. Lord, help us as we work through this passage to see not only the depressing elements and the heaviness of your hand and the judgment against sin and idolatry, but Lord, also your mercy toward us as people and the opportunity you hold out to us in hearing your voice to turn from empty and worthless ways to the living God who, who gives and sustains life. And we ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. I can't believe it's almost 20 years now, but it's 20 years from the making of that movie Gladiator. I know some of you have seen it. Some of you are, you know, Lord bless you, you're a Christian. You don't watch movies. I get that. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with Nothing wrong with your choice there. Some of you do watch movies like that, and you've seen Gladiator, and so you'll remember some of those scenes where Maximus, Russell Crowe's character, has been taken captive, and, and he's leading other captives out into battle in the arena, and you know, they're going out there, and they're winning battles they shouldn't win at all, and they're all out there together fighting, and then there's that one scene before his epic line, are you not entertained? You remember that? Are you not entertained? Well, right before that, leading up to it, things change. Instead of leading everyone else out into battle with him, Russell Crowe's character decides, I'm going to do this one all on my own. He tells everyone else to sit it out, 
he walks right into the arena and he absolutely destroys everything he finds there. It's as if he's making a point. I don't need any help with this. Not to equate the two, but to a degree that's what we're seeing here. The living God, who who is not the same thing as this box called the ark. The Philistines may have believed that. But the living God is going into battle, so to speak, against the false religion of the Philistines. And he's saying, I'm going to do this one all by myself. According to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and you can look this up later, but if you read, if you just want to read some more depressing Bible, read Deuteronomy chapter 8, or rather 28, especially the latter half of that chapter, starting in verse 14. And what God is doing there is after he pronounces all the blessings that would follow them for obedience, he pronounces and and lists out all the curses that would follow them if they disobeyed. And one of the things that he says there in in Deuteronomy 28 verse 41 is that you will father sons and daughters, but they will not be yours and they won't remain with you for they will go into captivity. Captivity was one of the curses promised by God when his people forsook him and disobeyed. And so according to God's word and his law, it is the people who should have gone into captivity. But here in 1 Samuel chapter 5, who goes into captivity? God as represented by the ark. He takes onto himself the punishment due to his people. And he walks in and says, I'm going to fight this one all by myself. And woe to the Philistines, who, Lord bless them, all the, they, they thought they had captured God. They thought that Dagon, their chief God, had proven himself to be more powerful than the God of Israel. And when Israel fled and left that box called the ark, that they were actually going there to pick up Israel's God and take him captive and put him in the temple of their god Dagon as a trophy of conquest. If the ark could speak, it would say, I don't know who you are. No, it would say, I know know exactly who you are. I have a lot of skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. So God goes into captivity, and here is what we read. Now, what I want to do is point out, for time's sake, just a few things about pagan thought and pagan religion that if we're not careful creep into our lives and into our worship of even the one true God and we want God to try to weed those things out and purify our expressions of worship to him one of the first things we notice here about the Philistines as they conceive of God and as they they relate to him is that they get the sense that they can um, they can just neatly add God to all of their other gods Look, look with me again at verse 2. It says here, The Philistines took the ark of God, which for them they would have made no distinction between that and God himself, and they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside him. Now, Dagon was their chief god, and there would have been a pantheon of gods in this temple, and Dagon would occupy the primary place, the chief place that said he is preeminent. And maybe they had some regard for the power of this god of Israel. After all, about 500 years before, he had done some incredible things in Egypt, and they had a high regard, we saw last chapter and last week, they had a high regard for his power, and they even had some fear before they entered into battle with Israel because they had known of God's reputation. So probably when they put God in that temple, they set him up right beside Dagon in the number two spot. Right? Like Alabama lost to LSU, you're not going to bump him down too far. You, you get the idea? Most people are still going to fear having to play Alabama. 
You get the idea, right? So they're going to, the pollsters are going to give Alabama maybe a number four, right? But they're not going to go too far down. That's what they would have done with God here. They would have, in their minds, they're putting God right next to Dagon, maybe number two, maybe number three. But I, this, is, this would be the perfect time for a Patrick uh, Swayze meme. Nobody puts Yahweh in a corner. A lot of times we think we can take God and put him neatly in a, in a space where we set limits for him and we put him in a, I would say, a context of a larger belief system where somebody else is really the top dog. Somebody else really has the voice that speaks to us with authority and defines for us everything that we really believe to be right and wrong and true. How does that look practically? I'm glad you asked. All of us have values. All of us have desires. But none of those values, none of those desires exist in isolation right? We, we have to consider which of those desires it is right to pursue at a given moment and not in another moment. We have to consider which of those values should be prioritized if they come into conflict with another value that all by itself might even be good or allowable. And so our, our desires and our values have to be guided and arranged and prioritized by some larger moral framework that is supplied to us or that we invent for ourselves. Right? One of the practical ways that looks is this. Like, so I, I have a value for all human life. I believe every single human being is created in the image of God, regardless of height, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of nationality, regardless of race. Every, every human being, regardless of whether or not they've been born uh, or if they're still, still in their mother's womb, every human being has inherent dignity and value because every human being is an image bearer of God. All right, so that's something I believe, that's, that's a value that I have when it comes to human life, right? I have a desire. I have a desire that all human beings would have their most pressing and basic needs met. And I, in fact, I want them to experience more than just the meeting of their basic needs. I want them to go well beyond that in the direction of prosperity. So I have certain values when it comes to human life. I have certain desires. And most people that I have met share those values and those desires. I, I personally don't know many people, if any, who don't on some level value most human life, at least all human life they can see. I don't, know, I don't know anyone that I've run into who's like, I just, I don't care if that person's needs are met or not. I mean, and, and again, I'm sure people like that exist. I've not run into many of those people in my last 20 years or so. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Think about what it says there in this part of the Bible. And this is one of the most shocking verses in the Bible. Because there, the Apostle Paul says, when we were with you, Thessalonians, we gave you this command. If a man is not willing to work, let him not eat. 
I want you to think about that for a moment. That is God speaking through the Apostle Paul. Does God value that human being less than I do? What's the correct answer? No, no, of course not. Does the Apostle Paul value that human being less than I do? No. Does God desire that that person would just go without his needs met? No. But those values and those desires don't exist in isolation. So what God is saying is, he's saying, listen, I have created that person for a particular purpose and I know exactly what that person needs in order to prosper in this life that I have given to him. And so I have ordained that one of the ways his most basic needs would be met is through his own work. And God doesn't say if a man is not working or if a man cannot work, let him not eat. That's a different situation. He says if a man will not work. If he will not work and then just assumes that everybody else is supposed to pick up what the, the responsibility that is rightly his because of how God has apportioned those responsibilities, then God is saying, show some tough love and let him not eat so that he learns a very important lesson. There is a, a greater wisdom from God. There is a, a larger belief system and moral framework that guides our desires and values at that moment and that rearranges them or prioritizes them as needed to do the most good to that individual. It's like the, it's like the six-year-old kid, the six-year-old boy that, that wanted to help the butterfly that was struggling to get out of the cocoon. Have I told you this? Well, he, he came across this tree. He saw, the, saw a butterfly trying to get out of the cocoon one day and the butterfly was stuck. I mean, this kid's heart, I mean, the, kid, the kid just had the biggest heart of compassion. And, and he just couldn't bear it. So he went and he got a stick. And he opened that cocoon up to let the butterfly out. And the butterfly just flopped and fell straight to the ground. Couldn't move, couldn't fly. The kid was compassionate. But his compassion was not met with and guided by wisdom. What the kid didn't know is that in the way that God had made the world and had made the butterfly, and it, the, God put a process in place for that butterfly to struggle against a cocoon so that its wings would develop the strength that it would need to fly. So you and I are oftentimes accused of lacking compassion when really what's going on is that we might just be allowing God's voice to be the loudest voice in the room as opposed to the false gods who might try to guilt trip us into going down a path that meets their preferences but not necessarily follows God's word and God's wisdom. So, so that's one of the hardest things we have to do and if you've ever worked with us in, in terms of trying to meet certain people's needs, sometimes we have to recognize that we are not called to be the very first responder to a particular need. There's no law against love or generosity. I encourage you to be as generous as you possibly can with what belongs to you. But we, we always have to consider in our efforts to do good to be guided by God's wisdom as well because we might be removing from someone the opportunity they need to gain the strength for their situation to become sustainable where they are now able to help meet their own needs and also, hopefully, to become part of helping to meet the needs of others. And we don't necessarily want to circumvent that 
right, as we are trying to help people. Does, that, does this make sense? Are you all following? Because this is very important because people will criticize Christians a lot if they say that this is part of the belief that guides their, their desires and their values, right? We could go into a myriad of examples. You know, some of you can imagine certain people have desires to exist in certain relationships and to enjoy certain relationships, but God's word has something to say about the kinds of relationships he permits, and it doesn't mean that we love people less or, or we have less compassion or we want people to deny themselves happiness for the rest of their lives. That's not what's going on at all. What we're saying is that we can't just put God and his word, I mean the Ark of the, the Covenant contained portions of God's word in it. We can't just take something that looks like Christianity and even truth and portions of truth and stick it next to a false God that says, well, here's how you really should live and relate to all these people I've put here. No, God's voice has to be the voice in the room that determines how all of our desires, all of our values, all of our beliefs are put together and arranged and prioritized so that we honor him as we try to do good for others. Are you all following me? I say that because I don't want you guys in this spiritual and cultural climate to be guilted into thinking that you have a responsibility to meet the demands that other people place on you if those demands are not consistent with the direction in which God calls us by his word. Your obligation and your allegiance is to the living God who speaks through the Bible and not to these other would-be gods who think that they should have the place in your life to control what you think, what you believe, what you do, and how you do it. Our lives belong to the Lord and not to them. We look forward to serving them and helping them in whatever ways we can, provided that we do not have to be unfaithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in order to do it. And having said that, I will move on. One of the other elements of pagan religion that tends to creep in, not only do we believe we can put baby, I mean put God, Yahweh, in a corner, we sometimes make the mistake of thinking that we can just continue in the path of idolatry so long as we tweak something about our, our false religion and our idolatrous ways. Look at verses three through five. When, when the people rose early the next day, no doubt, to celebrate their conquest and see their trophy. They found out that Dagon had fallen face downward. And maybe they thought this was a coincidence. So they do something you should never have to do for your God. Help him up. <laughs> if, if your God is the, is the lead actor on the commercial, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. That's just, it's time to get a new God. But they prop him up, and I'm sure they take pains this time to make sure this doesn't happen again. But when they come back the next morning, he's fallen down again in front of the ark of the Lord. In a posture where he's paying homage to the Lord. And he, that's the idea here. No, Dagon has not conquered the Lord. In fact, he's on his face in front of the Lord. Yahweh is supreme. Dagon is a false god. And this time, his head is gone. His hands are gone. He has no mind. He has no thought. He has no power to act. That's, what, that's what's being symbolized here. He's, uh, for, to help you millennials, I mean, maybe you haven't seen Gladiator, but you, 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 Dagon is, is like Post Malone here falling apart, right? Some of you, some of you know what that is. All, he's, in, he's in pieces. And watch what verse five says. 
I mean, it, verse 5 should read much differently than it does. And I, I, don't, I don't say that to mean that something's wrong with God's word and it should be changed. I mean that there's everything wrong with the Philistines' response to what they've just witnessed. It says here that now, because of this, the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold to this day. I mean, that, that's what you get out of this? You, so you're still going to worship Dagon and enter his house to worship him, but you're just going to make sure you skip over the threshold as you do it. Is that, is that different from what we should read here? Now, I wish it was only the Philistines that did this kind of thing, right? But don't we do the same thing sometimes? When aspects of our lives are going in an idolatrous direction, Sometimes we say, you know what the problem was? It, 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 it's not my idolatry. It's not that I, I'm pursuing the wrong God. It's not that I'm, it, it, that's not the problem. It's the threshold. My life is falling apart at this point, at this threshold. So I, I just got to skip over it and keep going in the same idolatrous direction. That's too general and vague for you. It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't that relationship with this person. It's not because I was getting my meaning and value and my sense of worth and my purpose from that little human being that God put over here that I call my boyfriend or my girlfriend. That's not the problem. It's not my idolatry. It's the threshold. I I was in a long distance relationship. That's the point at which this all fell apart. I just need to stop having these long-distance relationships where I I can't communicate effectively. And so I'm going to keep going in an idolatrous direction and continue to get my value and sense of worth from this boyfriend or girlfriend, but I'm just going to make sure I do it with people who live in the same city as I do. I'm just going to tweak my idolatry a little bit. That'll help me. I'm not going to abandon the empty and worthless pursuit that God talks about over and over and over and over again where I try to get my sense of righteousness by the things that I do and how well I obey God and and I'm going to stand that before him and say, look, Lord, I've been pretty good. I'm not going to abandon that. I'm just going to look at the place that I believe I've been worst in terms of morality. I'm going to look at that one place and I'm going to fight really hard right there and if I have a bit of success, I'm going to prop that up in front of God and say, you know, look, see this threshold where my my morality has been falling apart? It's better now. Now I have reasons for confidence to come in here and worship God. Some of us, listen, and I know this personally, I, I, I remember one day, this was a long time ago, maybe like 15 years ago or so, maybe even more than that, but I remember coming in on a Sunday morning one day feeling like, man, I just I felt so disqualified, couldn't worship God. I just, I, just, I just felt, man, I don't deserve to be here. Lord, you know what I was doing last night. And, and, and God, in his mercy, God spoke to me that morning and said, man, man, welcome home, son. For the first time, you can, you can probably actually worship me now instead of yourself. What righteousness did you think you possessed every other week before now? I mean, who were you worshiping? You felt so good about yourself that you could lift your hands last week, but now because you sinned very recently, you you can no longer worship me. And God says, nothing about me has changed. The, The object of your worship, if it's me, hasn't changed at all. 
But see, the problem was the object of my worship did change. The record of my obedience had just changed. And what I thought qualified me to enter into God's presence was my ever-changing record of good versus bad deeds. As long as the good outweighed the bad, I could come in and I was good. No, 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 but it's not my ever-changing record of good versus bad deeds that makes me able to stand before God as forgiven and as righteous. It's Jesus' never-changing record of perfect obedience. Romans 5, 19 takes care of that. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so now through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. There is one man's obedience that makes me righteous before God, and that man is not me. It is Jesus Christ. Is my obedience to God important to, to him and to others and to me? Absolutely. Am I going to give it my best effort to listen to God and walk in the direction of obedience? You bet. Am I going to try to make that mistake I used to make where I think that that's what qualifies me to stand in God's presence? No way. No way. If my foot hits the threshold of, man, Lord, I need your forgiveness again right now as I come into your presence, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. I'm not going to take my sin lightly, but I'm not going to take God's forgiveness, his perfection, his righteousness, and his work in the gospel on my behalf lightly either. All right, so more elements of pagan religion. Sometimes we think we can put Yahweh in a corner and give him a limit and confine him to a particular space within a larger set of beliefs and ideas. Sometimes we think we can just tweak our idolatry. Now, now look beyond as God begins to move through six, verse 6 through 12 and deal with the Philistines themselves. One of the other mistakes we make is we think that God's power is diminished depending upon where we are in the world depending upon the location. This is one of the hallmarks of pagan religion. They thought that these gods were territorial. Maybe the God of Israel is very powerful in Egypt, but if you get him out of Egypt and you meet him in Ebenezer, you might have a chance to beat him. Maybe, maybe, maybe if you fight him on his home turf, he's really powerful, but if you can get him on the road, you got a chance. And so this is why it's so natural for the people to say, all right, man, think, things aren't going well here in Ashdod. What do we do? Well, let's move him to Gath. Because see, Ashdod, would, it would have been, they would have gone from where they thought they defeated God in battle. They would have taken him about 10 miles west to the Mediterranean, and they would have gone about another 20 miles down the coast to Ashdod. And that's kind of on the way to Gaza, and if you were to keep going, and, and you would eventually get to Egypt. And so they probably, they, it doesn't say, but they probably reasoned this way. Maybe we took God too close to Egypt, and that's where he seems to be strongest. So you know what? Let's take him 10 miles east over, over to Gath. Maybe Dagon can manage him there. That didn't work. Well, let's take him up to Ekron, about another five miles north. Maybe, maybe we can find just the right spot. But listen, God, God, God is everywhere at the same time. God isn't in, he's not, he's not more powerful in this city than another or less powerful in that country than, than this one. There may be more Christian witness, more gospel witness in a particular place than another. Absolutely. But, but you think God is hindered? You think God is hindered from moving and working in this country because certain theologians and, and cultural analysts say that we live in a post-Christian era? I mean, you think, stop for a minute and think about this. You think that means anything to God? Well, I was about to, I was about to save this person, but it's a post-Christian era. <laughs> I mean, 
I don't know what people are talking about. You mean as a po- well, you can't just walk onto that campus and preach the gospel and expect people to get saved today. I mean, because, you know, people didn't grow up going to church. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't know that God's power was diminished because of that. Oh, but, but they're, they're in a sorority, Lauren. I mean, well, you can't. You can't I mean, well, I'm sorry. I, did, I didn't know God couldn't save people in a fraternity or a sorority. It's just not true. I, I, don't, I don't care how many people say it's a post-Christian era. Last I checked, there is no post-Jesus at all. There is no time, there is no place where all authority in heaven and on earth doesn't belong to him. It doesn't exist. We are not in a post-Christian era. We are not in a post-Christian America. There is no such thing. We are in an America where fewer people are influenced appropriately by the gospel of Jesus Christ than they were at some point in the past. But the power of Christ from the cross and in the resurrection is not diminished one single bit. The power of the gospel we proclaim is unhindered in its ability to reach into the human heart and to create new life. And if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God is is carrying out his promise to put the new creation in place. And of the increase of his government and kingdom, there will be no, everybody, no end of the increase. Ever since Jesus came and set foot on this earth, died and rose again, there has been an increase of his government and of his kingdom, which has never slowed down and will not have an end. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the truth. Don't allow any other voice to tell you differently. Go out with that confidence that all authority in heaven and on earth, anywhere you find yourself, belongs to him. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and we'll do that this afternoon. I can't believe we're going outside on November 10th in freezing weather to go, to go baptize people. But we're doing it. Why? It took me a while to think about why we're doing that. <laughs> because Jesus is Lord and people are responding to him. And man, all right, so it's going to be cold but man, what we're selling. If Jesus could go to a cross for us, we can go into some cold weather for him. Right? I'm going to keep telling myself that. Some of you aren't going. I don't blame you. Look at, look at some of these people. We look forward to those of you who will come. Last thing I want to point out here is that we're often quick. And I promise this is the last one for time's sake. One of the, the ways that pagan religion creeps in, this really is the last one looking at the clock. One of the ways pagan religion begins to creep into our lives, you can see in verse 12. And of course, in in the run-up up to it. But in verse 12, it says that the men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Up until this point, every time they were overcome with grief and and they were being struck with all these, these tumors and everything else and people were dying, People think it was the bubonic plague, what, what, you know. But all of the times leading up to this, do you notice what they did? Who did they, who did they gather? Hey, let's, let's, grab, let's grab all of these 
lords of the Philistines. Let's, let's grab the five governors, the five civic leaders. Let's, let's grab some council of political leadership to, to deal with our problem. At, at what point, at what point do God's people send their cry up to heaven? At what point do we really believe in God to the point where we understand that the, the, the solution to problems that are inherently spiritual will not be solved by a group of politicians? I mean, at what point do we really believe that? Now, I'm all for it. You guys, some of you know me. I am all for participating in the American political process. And I, I mean, I love the privilege we have to do that. I, I see it as a part of my stewardship from God. I also see it as part of the way that I love people because I think that those who hold political power have a, have a tremendous influence on our lives and, and decide a lot of things. So I, I think it's a way that I love people and so I, I always look forward to participating in those things as far as I can. But what I won't do is I won't put all of my hope, all of my confidence, and, and, and all of that into a, into a group of people who hold elected office or who get appointed to some bureaucratic position. I think their jobs are important and I pray for them, but my confidence is not in them. Proverbs 29 verse 26 says, many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. But this is why, this is why I don't throw myself too far into social movements that, that put the tag or label of justice on them, but that are much more about political activism than they are about prayer. I just told you why I personally take that approach. I'm not against the activism. I think, it's, I think it can be very helpful. It has been very helpful. Real progress has come out of those things. I think that a lot of times God is behind some of these things. If you want to know which specific ones I think God is behind, we'd have to have further conversation. I don't, I don't think it's all of them. But, but this is what I'm telling you. Is I, I, I think that there, there has to be a sense in which the church displays where our confidence truly lies. It ought to be different from, from those who don't know God at all and who are probably much more steeped in, in pagan practices than we should be. At what point does this actually change our lives? That the fact that the Bible says it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. At what point does that really change the way that we pray and relate to others? When does that change the, ad, the address that we put on that cry? So we're not just gathering together against city councils, but we're, we're falling before the Lord in prayer. God wants to purify our worship of him. Even when we're not, we're not full-blown blown pagans as we would identify that, but, but he wants to purify any residual or leftover remnants of paganism in our worship of him. And I hope that his word has been an occasion for that this morning. That probably the most important thing we can see from this text today, though, is what we alluded to a little bit earlier. This is a story where we get to see the mercy of God towards sinners, just like the ark goes into captivity all by itself and God in a sense is saying, I'm going to fight this battle on my people's behalf by myself. That is exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. A day came much later where Jesus would say, uh-huh, you should be the one 
to experience the punishment. You should be the one taken captive. But I am going to take your punishment upon myself. And I'm going to go to the cross. And then if, if, if you'll allow me to phrase it this way, Jesus allows himself in a sense to be arrested and taken captive. And even death itself would put its clutches on Jesus for a little while until it learned its lesson. Bad idea to kidnap Liam Neeson's daughter. Bad idea to touch the ark if you're not authorized. And if you're death, it was a really bad idea to mess with Jesus. Jesus goes into that place on our behalf. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 tells us that just because, because we have flesh and blood, so Jesus also shared in flesh and blood like the children of God. He shared in our flesh and blood and in our humanity so that he might taste death for us. And in so doing, in tasting death for us, he might destroy him who held the power of death, that is the devil, and free us who all our lives have been held captive to the fear of dying. He did that for us. Jesus went to a place that we could not go. He fought a battle we could not fight. He earned a victory for us we could never earn for ourselves. And now he emerges from that place in the resurrection, full of power and evidence that he has the authority and the ability to give us the life that only he can give us. And he offers that to us this morning for all who will hear him and come to him. What would keep you this morning? Not in a pagan way, not... not, not, not not, not in a, a sense of falling to the ground and falling to pieces like that false god Dagon, but what would keep you this morning from falling before the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to re receive not his judgment, but his mercy? I'll, I'll, I'll close with this as you think about that. My favorite song probably is, is one that we hardly ever hear in music, but it, it was written by John Newton, the same guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And, and he said, there are two looks Jesus gives us from the cross. And I, I, I want you to look upon the cross with your heart now and to see these two looks from Christ. John Newton put it this way. He said, I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. But never till my dying breath will I forget the look which seemed to charge me with his death though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair for I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there but with a second look he said I freely all forgive this blood is for your ransom paid I died that you might live Lord help us maybe for the first time to look upon your cross with the eyes of our heart and to see the two looks that you give us the first look that indicts us for the sinful lives that we've lived, but the second look which invites us to receive a full pardon at the foot of your cross and a share in the eternal life that only you can offer. I pray that you would, you would do that for us, that you would not only convince us, but compel us to come to you by your grace and mercy. And we ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. With your eyes closed real quick, if that's you and you're saying for the first time, I'm going to give my life to the Lord this morning, just, just raise your hand so we can see that. Just want to know who it is we're praying for specifically and who we might want to speak to. All right. Now, I don't see any hands, but that's, that's fine. Hopefully, if there was a hand, that hand is also not just a raised hand, but a surrendered heart. And, and um, hopefully, even if you didn't raise your hand, then God's, God's doing some work in your heart if that's what needs to be done. If you're serving the elements of communion, please go ahead and grab those now and, and, and take your positions there.
and be ready to serve those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. If you have come to faith in Christ, this is a time for you where we proclaim his saving death on our behalf through receiving these elements or reminders of his grace. The bread representing his body, the cup representing his blood or his life. So as Christians, if you've given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, then when you're ready, please come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. Lord, thank you again for all you've done for us. Help us to increasingly honor you, purify our lives of any empty religion, and make us merciful messengers on your behalf to the rest of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodlett, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.